We can be found on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Like, share, subscribe, and leave us a comment down below. Now, on with the show. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. Fucking thing. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Right. Fuck it. Death Holler is a horror cast created by two true horror fans to bring to the table your favorite horror films. Topics include, but are not limited to, historical horror, gore, the occult, and terror. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, everyone, to Death Holler. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. Death. Joining me as, joining me as always is my uh, co-host, uh, La Urena. How are you doing, Urena? I'm doing pretty good. Excited to be back. This week, we are bringing you part two of our Krampus discussion. Obviously, we uh, geeked out quite a bit on this one. It is uh, is one of our favorite holiday movies. Spoiler alert for our ultimate uh, rating of this movie, but... Um, before we get into that, there's a few things that we wanted to go over. First of all, something that my co-host had pointed out to me that I left out of, uh, that I had put in the show notes last time, but had left out of the actual discussion about sleigh bells, <laughs> was uh, it's just a quick little note that uh, it's surprisingly, whenever I discussed how um, the one impressive thing about the movie was the, the actual costume that they made for Krampus and that. Uh, I forgot to leave out the part, or I, I did leave out the part, and I should have discussed it, about how they went so far as to actually show his uh, genitalia in the movie. So, uh, <laughs> if that's your thing, uh, that might increase your ratings of this. I don't think it personally added much to the movie, but hey, it's got Krampus junk in it. So, there you go. Just one little extra thing about sleigh bells for you. You know what? For the ladies uh, out there, they might want to see a Krampus crank, you know? They, they might. Uh, I personally uh, do not. <laughs> Hannah Wagner uh, did not seem like she enjoyed it very much whenever she uh, tempted Krampus out of his uh, hidey hole, so there you go. Uh, another thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that I felt kind of bad after the last episode because there uh, we had this discussion about the killer Santa Claus uh, type thing that was going on in horror, and I never really discussed I never really said anything much or much about it because outside of something that I'll bring up here in a little bit after Urena discusses uh, her attack of the bees, I I didn't really focus on that style of movie, so I didn't really have anything to or I, unfortunately to really to, to go off of. So I decided to spend some time watch a few of them. I didn't get to watch all of them, but I did watch Christmas Evil. I did watch uh, Silent Night Deadly Night Two, and even though it's not a evil Santa movie. I did watch uh, Black Christmas, both the original and the 2019 remake. Don't don't watch the 2019 remake. God help you, please don't watch that. But <laughs> uh, I do have to say, Christmas Evil is okay. It's goofy enough to where it's enjoyable. It's not really a movie that I would personally go back to and rewatch. 
Uh, I never did watch. I did not watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, the original movie, but I did watch the sequel to it, which kind of, if you know anything about that movie, is kind of a redo of the first movie for like maybe the first quarter or ha- or even third of the, the sequel. You're basically watching the first movie just redone, and then they go into the new movie. That movie is amazing. It is one of those so bad it's good movies, and if you get a chance to watch it, Please do. There is a reason, and you can Google it, why Garbage Day is in the lexicon of all horror fans, and it, it it's just a treasure to watch. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, I did enjoy that movie, and I thought that it was uh, worth watching. However, Urena uh, watched uh, something uh, centered around holiday horror that I feel is a lot better, and that brings up her uh, own version of Attack of the Bees. So take it away, Urena. I'm so excited I get to do the Attack of the Bees. I'm gonna cue the music just for this. Great. Whoa, what is that, what is that, what is it? Oh, no, not the bees, not the bees! Ah! I don't my eyes! So, a long, long time ago, we had an amazing television series called Tales from the Dark Side, and I know you remember that. Oh, yeah. I watched that quite a bit. I don't know if you had any episodes in particular that stuck out. I have maybe a handful, so literally five I could think of at the top of my head that I wouldn't do a very good job at explaining. But this one, what do you have? I was just going to say I remember mostly the movie, than more about it than I do the actual show. And I do remember there was a remake of it that I think they did later on, and I did watch that. And I, the only thing I remember about the remake was, and it struck me just because I'm an arachnophobe, there was a, the very first episode was like some guys in like this uh, uh, warehouse, and there was these uh, spiders, humongous spiders that were like crawling down from the rafters and killing them. But that, that's the only thing I really remember about that remake that they eventually did. Hmm. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't even know about the remake. I knew about the movie and I loved the movie. Yeah, but the remake the was show, very short lived. I, I think the reason why the, sh- the, the first original series stuck with me is because I was so little watching these scary, you know, they weren't obviously they wouldn't be scary to us now. But to me, they were so scary. I was like, oh, my God, I, they stuck with me. So there's a few episodes that I remember and they were actually from the series and the, I think the intro music is what always kind of got me. That it it had great intro music, and if I remember right, if in you if you remember this, was there an episode? The one episode that does stand out about the original series is something about a, uh, a family that keeps getting a phone call, and it's this, and it's really creepy. Like they don't know where it's coming from, and eventually they find out like a phone line is broken. And like a local graveyard, and like there, and whoever, and where the line fell down on the grave, that's who's been calling the people. I think I, I oh, remember something no. similar to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that seems like something that would really get you because you particularly get eked by that beyond the grave stuff, ghosts yeah, and everything. Th- yeah, that's that's really what I focus on more than anything whenever it comes to stuff that scares me. Well, the tale that I bring to you today from Tales from the Dark Side is what I consider to be one of kind of like an introduction to Krampus. But this monster that they have in this episode wasn't called Krampus. It was called the Grither. Don't say that. Yeah. And the (laughs) 
the premise behind this, I'm going to kind of condense it down a little bit, but the premise behind this was there was this basically like Christmas creature that would come after bad children that didn't believe specifically in the grither. I mean, Christmas is one thing, but the grither, you had to believe in him, but you also could not say his name one too many times because this creature who was monstrous in height, I'm going to go with at least nine plus feet tall, um, every time he heard his name, his ears got bigger to the point where he could eventually fly over to you using his ears as wings. So the parents in the story tell. It sounds so ridiculous. Uh, it when sounds you ridiculous. Just... Oh, my God. I loved this so much as a kid, though. I thought it was so great. So in this uh, episode, uh, which, by the way, was um, written and directed by Michael McDowell, He's known for some pretty decent shows and movies. You might know Beetlejuice, not only the movie, but the series. I did did not know that he was over that as well. Yeah. The Nightmare Before Christmas, obviously. Um, Monsters. Do you remember Monsters, the uh, the television series? The television series. I don't remember that. Oh, my God. I have to introduce you to that. Monsters, the television series, was pretty cheesy, but had some, I mean, for kids, you know, 10 and below, had some pretty decent scares. It wouldn't do anything for my children. They've, they're beyond that. Honestly, when you say that, I think of Little Monsters with Hallie Mandel and Fred Savage. Yeah, that's what I was thinking at first, but I do remember a series called Monsters. So we're going to have to look into that on another season episode, etc. Um... Because I remember it, and I remember there being a few episodes that scared me, but for the most part, it wasn't very scary. I think it was supposed to be a little bit friendlier. Um, And then he's also known for the movie Thinner. I'm pretty sure he was a writer on that film, obviously, we know, written by uh, Stephen King. Right. The the only thing I have against uh, that I noticed, they've mentioned that he... Uh, wrote for the for Nightmare Before Christmas, but if you watch that Shutter special or not Shutter, but Netflix special about that, they actually said that he was supposed to be writing it, but instead he might have been sniffing cocaine more than he was actually writing the script, and they had to go other means to actually write the movie. So he might have got writing credit for that, but he really yeah. shouldn't have. Maybe he's got some credits in it. I mean, where there are multiple writers because. I mean, in this particular show, there was multiple writers. There's another writer by the name of Michael Bishop, but he doesn't get a lot of credit. I think, that if I remember what I was reading about this, because I just read about it real quick before we started recording, that he was that McDowell's actually this was his directorial debut, I believe, mm-hmm. in The Grither. Not too bad then. Uh, you know, for what it was back in the day, you got to remember this was back in 1986. I was four years old. Uh, so terrifying for a child like myself that was raised on fear. Trust me, in the Catholic household I was in. <laughs> I don't even know how my parents let me watch this, honestly. But um, we have in the cast, we have E.G. Marshall, known as the, uh, in this episode, as the quotation mark of the father. They didn't really give them names. Uh, he <laughs> is known um, as Chris. He was Alan's dad. Excuse me, not Chris. He was in Christmas Vacation. He was Alan's dad. You know, the one that reminded Clark that the little lights weren't twinkling. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's that actor. Um, We have the mother, played by Margaret Clank. She's kind of known for several soap operas, pretty big ones, but, you know, nothing kind of worth mentioning, at least not on this show. (laughs) 
Guy Berdahl played Jimbo. This was the little boy in this show, and he moved on to some pretty decent things as well. He went on to play a couple of uh, characters in the TV show Daria. I don't know okay. if you remember that on MTV. I, I loved do. Daria. Not scary, but you know. Uh, and then Family Matters, which is scary, but in a different way. <laughs> uh, very scary in a different way. <laughs> Jenna Von Oy, she had a little bit better. Um, she had some better choices she made in her acting career. She played six in the television show Blossom, which was pretty big in the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that quite a bit. She played, uh, she was in Saved by the Bell. She was a character that was on for quite a bit with that show. She was in the Goofy movie and the Goofy, I don't know, there was some kind of movie afterwards that came out. And in Seventh Heaven. So she did pretty good for herself. She plays one horrified little girl in this movie or this television show and does a really convincing job, actually. And I don't blame her. Um Kind of as I briefly mentioned, you have just a standard, you know, Christmas tale, a family at home telling Christmas stories, waiting for their uncle to come over. It's blizzering outside. I swear it looks like the Krampus movie outside. And children are getting bored and they're kind of talking about Christmas and what they believe in. And this father basically goes into the story about the grither. And as I mentioned before, it's this... Christmas monster that uh, <laughs> you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why, because the Christmas grither is going to come and rip you limb from limb is what this one does or break your neck. Yeah, break your neck. Yeah. So <laughs> they, <laughs> you have to finish the story in order for the grither to not come after you, basically, but every time you say its name, which I've said it, I don't know how many times now, I'm pretty sure it's coming from me, so I've got to finish Yeah, I'm pretty story. sure it's outside your home right now. <laughs> My kids are probably playing with them right now. <laughs> um, if you don't finish the story, he, he can get you. So it comes into this long line of, where did you hear this story? Well, the mother heard it from her brother, who's on his way through the snowstorm to get to them. And then he told it to her, and she told it to her husband, and now he's telling it to the children. He takes this really long phone call, which terrorizes these children because they're like, you need to finish the story. Oh, my God, finish the story. And all while this father is taking this long phone call, the mother keeps saying, oh, yeah, he's at Denver now. He's getting close. He's definitely over, you know, the airport right now, heading this way. Be here in about 12 minutes. So these children are just like, Okay, do we believe this? Do we not? You could tell that they believe it because they're just about to piss their pants, basically. Um, father comes in after his long phone call, says he didn't know who it was, but was gone for an awful long time. Children try to convince him to tell the story, but then the door just blasts wide open. Snow is coming in. Everyone's getting blown around, and it turns out it's actually their uncle, uh, <laughs> who Always had called, uncle. spoken to the dad, and knew that they were learning about the grither, so he made sure to make some grithery noises, if you will, to kind of scare the children into thinking that the grither had arrived. <laughs> we move on to the uncle going in, and these children have still not heard the end of the story, so the adults are going to go into the kitchen and have adult time. This story has not been finished 
And these kids are freaking the fuck out. And the mom finally gets down to their level and says, hey, you look at it. It's, it's just a tale. You don't have to worry about this. You know, here's a little history about it. It's, you know, it's it's just one of those Christmas tales. You don't have anything to be worried about. And the mom and the dad go to sit down in their chair. They hear this loud crashing, and you have these two long, monstrous arms just reaching through the window. The kids start running for cover. The little girl ends up in some space in between both the parents, and she gets to witness them both get their necks broken, split by the grither. And I don't know. I think that's what they get for not believing. I think that's what we've, we're learning with the grither and Krampus and Santa is that you better fucking believe or else. you got to have that Christmas spirit. You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> you do. Oh, man. So, yeah, a pretty short breakdown of this <laughs> episode. If I were to rate this on the Nicolas Cage scale, patent I'm going to give it a uh, <laughs> pending, excuse me, patent pending Nicolas Cage <laughs> scale. Okay, well, I'm going to rate this a honeymoon in Vegas. Have you seen that one? I have seen that. Perfect, because it is so cheesy. And there's like, you know, the twists and the turns that kind of get your blood boiling in this show. But at the end, it's just really, really cheesy. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a four-year-old like I was when I first watched this and you haven't been introduced to the devil like my children have at a young age, you're going to be terrified. But at the age I'm at now and I know for its time and what it was, um, I'm just, I'm going to, yeah, rate it that. It wasn't terrible. I would definitely watch it again just knowing that the cheese is really in there. So um, one last thing I wanted to bring up, this is something I think you and I discussed, not in depth, but uh, we discussed how George A. Romero was one of the creators of Tales from the Dark Side. Yes, uh, he came to Stephen King, I believe is the story, and uh, and asked Stephen King if he would be interesting and uh, interested in making up. I think this was around the time that they, right after they'd made Creepshow or, or something to that effect, and and wanted to know if he'd be willing to work with him, and uh, you know they um, they both collaborated a lot of on things during this time. So I'm definitely gonna say I'm grateful for that because I really did enjoy Tales from the Dark Side, cheese and all. It it gave me good fears as a little child, things to keep me in line. So uh, I'm not upset with that at all. I've I've got a question for you though, and this mm-hmm. ties back to my earlier discussion about the crazy Santas. Did you ever watch the Tales from the Crypt episode, another anthology series? This was a few years later where they had one particular episode called And All Through the House where they had a crazed Santa Claus break in and and basically murder this lady. Did you ever watch that episode? I don't think I did, but I guarantee you I have it. Uh, And it sounds like I need to watch it. It's, I mean, they done it originally in the 1970s movie. Oh my God, I'm lying to you. I'm lying to you. I have seen this one before because I remember that creepy ass looking Santa. Yeah, I, I feel like that that episode. I mean, you know, it, they played the horror up very well in that one. That's probably the only reason I bring it up is uh, you know another anthology series, but that's probably the only creepy Santa that I have seen that actually inspired any kind of fear in me because I've watched these other ones recently and I'm just like, whatever. I mean, there's a reason why I prefer Silent Night, Daily Night too, just because it's so cheesy. I mean, you got to have that cheese factor 
kind of like you had with uh, the Grither episode, you know, to, to kind of really, you know, go along with it because it's just a ridiculous concept. But they played it so well in that, that episode. They of, did. Uh, oh, my God. It In this one, I've seen it not too long ago. I'd say within the past year or two, I watched this one again. And I'm going to be honest with you, it holds up pretty well. That's awesome. Great to hear. All right. So shall we move on to part two? I think it's about time. All right. Anyways, when we cut back to the house, the power's gone off for the family. That's when you really get the cold effect because, I mean, from here on out, the only bright warmth we have is the fire, which is intentional. And maybe uh, a little bit later on, you get the lantern, which comes into effect for Howard. But really, there's, I mean, that and the tablets that they have, I mean, there's really not much light otherwise. Uh, a few yeah. candles here and there. Um, <clears throat> seeing that the fact that uh, Beth is gone, she's been gone for a while, um, Tom and Howard decide that they, they have to go look for her. She's just been gone too long. It's too cold outside. Shouldn't let her out in the first place. We've already discussed this. It's kind of stupid that they yeah. did, but whatever. So they've got Howard's honking SUV, the one that rumbled the whole entire house. So, of course, that thing's going to go regardless. Uh, I think he said... Wait, 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 wait. The Hummer. Didn't they have a name for it? Uh, was it Lucille? Wasn't that the name of it? It was I something it like was. that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... I, I just think it's funny. He says some kind of line like this thing could drive, a, you know, to Normandy or something like that. I mean, it could cross water. It was so badass or something. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of funny. But so they take out the the SUV and they're driving down the road. And for some reason, they don't come across, I, I don't know how this happened. They don't come across the DHL vehicle. They come across a snowplow that's been like just. Oh, yeah. And um, the snowplow, whenever they investigate it, they find out that uh, it's got broken glass, the windshield, and there's nobody inside of it. And Howard, you know, says, well, they, they probably just got thrown out of it or whatever. And that's when Tom's looking. He's like, no, this glass has been broken from the outside, meaning somebody has broken in through the window, yanked the, whoever was driving it out, and they're gone. Um, which really amps up the creep factor when you think about that, you know, what that really means. Uh, and whenever they realize you know, that they're, what kind of situation they're in. This is where Howard takes out his shotgun, uh, lovingly called his smoke pole, if you remember <laughs> the movie, <laughs> and uh, gives Tom a pistol, which Tom, you know, makes the comment about how it's, you know, pretty heavy. And then, you know, uh, Howard makes the offhand comment, yeah, it's Linda's, meaning it's, a, you know, you're, you're, my wife is able to handle this gun better than you can, you know, little pansy. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, and then they investigate the, they actually make it to the boyfriend's home and that's where a lot of foreshadowing for what's going to happen later comes in. Cause you have the entire house is covered in snow, which it shouldn't be. I mean, just because, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the, the chimney's the only thing busted. So there's really no reason for all that snow to be in there other than the fact yeah, that everything internally is covered in snow. Everything internally is covered in snow. Uh, Howard happens to notice that, uh, you know, he, he sees the gingerbread man pinned to the wall with a knife, which really, you know, is funny considering he's the one that's attacked later in the film by the, the gingerbread man. Um, yeah. You see the chimney completely ripped apart. Uh, Howard makes comment that it was probably a gas blowout or something, and we all know later what it is. It's literally Krampus coming down the chimney, ripping the thing apart. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't do like Santa Claus. He doesn't magically resize himself. He just, I mean, full bore. He's going to tear your chimney up coming down to get you, basically. Um, and then, uh, of course, Tom, being the you know the Eagle Scout that he is, he's the one that notices there's a footprint in front of the fireplace. 
and uh you know they and howard mentions that it looks like a goat's footprint but then you know tom kind of spookily says what kind of goat walks on its hind legs and that's kind of you know kind of plays into what we see later uh, they both kind of hear Bess screaming at this point. They rush outside, and that's where we get to our first, I want to call them snow worms. I don't know what you what term you had for these things, but whatever was out in the snow, it, it had like a, a snake or a uh, like worm or like a sandworm. It, it gave type me Beetlejuice vibe. vibes yeah. of the sandworm, yeah. so a snow worm is the most appropriate. Yeah, that, that's exactly the feeling I got from them. We never see them, I mean, even at the end of the movie, so we don't know what they are. But Howard is the one that actually gets attacked by one of them. Uh, he gets bit first by one of them. He kind of yells out, and then he gets pulled under. And it takes Tom actually saving or shooting the pistol to kind of save him. And at this point, you know, Howard's injured and is limping, but they're able to make it back. But when they get back to the SUV, they find out that the thing's been completely and utterly destroyed. Like, I mean, there is it's just fiery pieces and, you know, of course, Howard's inconsolable at this moment in time because that's his baby and she's <laughs> gone. <laughs> they make it back to the house. Uh, this is one of the few places in the movie where they actually show any blood, or actually the only place in the movie, I think, what Doherty said, where they show any blood, and that's Howard's wounds on his legs. And actually... Yeah, it was a pretty clean movie. Yeah, and, and, the, well, the, and again, that ties back to they wanted it to be rated PG-13 or less for kids. But it's funny because this scene... Uh, was fine, according to the MPAA. They had no problem with the blood. But uh, there's a little bit later scene in the movie, uh, right after this. I mean, of course, everybody's worried when they hear about what's happening to Howard and, and you know, what happened to him and, and what's kind of going on. And he spills the beans, even though Tom's telling him not to about what's really going on, so they really get scared. But then they all kind of break away, and there's a little bit of bonding moments. But the worst thing for the MPAA or whatever uh, for for this movie was the fact that there's a scene where Dorothy's bonding with the the cousins and she gives howie jr a little bit of a little bit of sip of her peppermint schnapps oh or whatever God. they threw a fit over that scene they didn't care about anything else in this movie you know you got gingerbread man attacking people you got worms or, or you got the the clown uh snake eating you know kids or whatever that's fine you got a christmas devil terrorizing the whole town town yeah, yeah that, that's all fine but you give the kid a little bit of booze oh my god you're gonna get rated r if you don't step it back a little bit they, they had to fight that a long time to get it in there but that's the part of the movie uh where i mean we actually see everybody coming together that's you see this happening tom actually acknowledges or howard acknowledges to tom you know, you saved me out there, buddy. I appreciate that. You're, you're not the pansy I thought you were. Basically, he doesn't say that outright, but that's what he's implying. Uh, you, yeah, it's there. You see the two sisters coming together. I mean, they're finally talking to each other in a more reasonable manner. They're not like, you know, sniping at each other the way they were. Like I said, Aunt Dorothy's with the cousins, kind of mixing in with them. And um, it just kind of, I mean, you see the family just coming together at this point. Uh, there's there's even a deleted scene, which I, I wish they'd left in as well, where Max uh, comes in and he offers his cousins uh, some of his leftover Halloween candy, which is a direct, direct tie-in to Trick or Treat because the candy he offers includes several of the candies that were in that movie that were made for that movie, like Holly Hose and you know some of the others. But the one in particular, you can see Sam's lollipop. It's not got the bite taken out of it, but it's the you know pumpkin head lollipop is in there when he offers them up to his cousins. Damn it! Yeah, I really wish they'd left it in there because why didn't I wonder why they didn't keep that? 
running time's the only thing I can think of, but I mean, it would have been awesome if they left that direct link. I mean, there's a, there's another scene later in the movie when they go upstairs in one of the closets. I think it's Max Max's room or, or something like that, where there's a, there, uh, it looks like a pumpkin headed, uh, uh, like doll or something like that's hanging in the closet or whatever. And it's got like a bite taken out of its head, you know, and, and, and that ties in too. And that's still in the film, but it's, it's so quick. You don't see it, but I wish they would have left this scene in. But again, the, you see the bonding. They're all staying close to the fire, which uh, Omi mysteriously tells everybody they have to keep blazing hot. They cannot let it burn down. That comes into effect later. Yeah, which is a tie to Yule, which is a pagan celebration, one of the many celebrations they had. <laughs> um, obviously, everyone's heard of a Yule log, and there's many myths behind that about keeping a Yule log burning all night long. And I thought that that was pretty interesting that they had it in this film because I've never heard of that being tied to Krampus in any way. It, so it's a, just, you know. It's a great tie-in. I mean, it makes sense in the regards to the movie because it's like he can't come in until that Yule log exactly. burns down. So do they have a reason in, in the Yule? Like, is it have anything tied to like dark spirits or anything like that? Because there's a lot of thing about in the dark history of Christmas about it being more in the in ancient time or, or like, you know, past times being more about like people focusing more on the death aspect a shorter time of the year. Does Yule have anything to do with that or is it just completely unrelated? You know, I can't say that it's completely unrelated because like Krampus, the lore and the myth surrounding or tied to it, it's all different. And it, I guess it just depends on what region you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, I just so yeah, I, I cannot say that it's unrelated because I mean that that plays into a, a Christmas carol or whatever that, that you know people think it's odd that you know people when you hear that people in Victorian times told ghost stories to each other on Christmas you think that's kind of weird sounding but I mean uh, Doherty comes up later in this little bit of trivia talking about how in, in you know earlier times uh, the Christmas season actually started on November 1st and it went from Samhain you know the end of Samhain you know to Christmas so the two Halloween and Christmas are not as far apart as we make them these days I mean of course exactly you know nowadays they're they infringe on each other in more commercial ways but I mean you got Christmas trees out at Halloween which is ridiculous but I mean the the themes between the two of them are not as dissimilar as people make them out to be because it was originally a time of reflection on you know the the years past what's coming up in the future what you got going on now it was more of a more you know somber occasion that you lightened up with all the decorations and that sort of thing in the movie at this point there's a a little neat little scene where one of the twins is watching the claymation video on her tablet and it kind of looks like the old rudolph animation but uh the elf is giving like a linus like speech or whatever from charlie brown christmas special and it's kind of funny because the reason they did that was because uh doherty wanted it to be charlie brown and he but they turned him down whenever he tried to get it and it's funny because in Trick or Treat, if you remember, that's one of the you know uh, Mr. Wilkins' son. <laughs> when when he when, he t- when Mr. Wilkins tells him to go watch Charlie Brown, the Halloween, you know, the Great Pumpkin, you know, his son was like, I don't like Charlie Brown. He's an asshole. So it's kind of funny <laughs> that it's kind of funny that Doherty tried to get Charlie Brown for this, and they were like, you know, fuck you, buddy. We're not letting you have our you know IP. Fuck yeah, off. but in Trick or Treat, they pretty much did. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you think it was because of Trick or Treat though I, I, that they're like, no, fuck it, you made us look like asses? I, I don't know, but it's just kind of funny that he that he does he he makes that snipe at Charlie Brown in, in Trick or Treat, and then he wants Charlie Brown in this, and they're like, nope, you're not getting it, buddy. Sorry. Oh man. 
But he said it was good because he said it led to the scene we're about to see where the claymation comes into this movie. He said it, it's, it's thematically tied in better to have it more of an old school claymation than to have like Charlie Brown at this point. So I guess it worked out in the long run. It's just kind of funny. Um, and, he, and also, the, the, the writers at this point, they wanted to show the family coming together because they wanted this to be the antithesis of most horror films. You know, like a lot of horror films, especially zombie films, when shit goes down, people fall apart. That's, that's a zombie movie 101. Like, you know, when the world starts coming down, it's not the zombies that are necessarily the thing that's going to end you. It's the fact that nobody can get along and we're all going to we're all going to fall apart and we're all going to turn on each other. They wanted this movie to be the opposite of that. When the, you know, bad stuff happens, people come together, they, they to try to overcome. So it kind of fits in better with the Christmas theme, obviously, but it's also a kind of a neat twist on that whole thing. Um, yeah. Uh, Howard and Tom at this point agree that somebody has to keep watch. There's bad stuff out there. They know they've been attacked. They don't know what it is, but they know that something bad's out there. And Howard, you know, in a, in a very empathetic and nice for him uh, showing, he, did, he agrees to take point, saying that Tom needs to be with his family. So he agrees to take point on keeping watch first, but uh, he fails because um, the next scene we see is him sound asleep, just like everybody else. It's completely dark in there. The fire is burned down to embers, which is really, really bad. And the tablet is down to its last 1% uh, as it's playing uh, Bing Crosby's Silent Night, uh, which is so appropriate for the scene. And it, Oh, yeah. And it dies. And when it dies, that's when the chimney uh, has a little bit of activity. you got the chain that comes down and the little gingerbread man that's, you know, attached to it. And lo and behold, Howie Jr. is the only one that sees it. He wakes up just in time to see it and... Uh, which is funny. They, they compare it in the commentary to Augustus Gloop from uh, Willy Wonka, but he, he just can't, the poor little bastard just can't keep, you know, himself away when he sees a gingerbread man. He's hungry. He's going to eat it. So he walks over there. He takes a good bite out of it. And uh, th- I don't know. I don't know if this scene bothered me when I first saw it, but they mentioned in the commentary, this is the scene where a lot of people freak out because they don't realize the gingerbread man's alive until he takes a bite out of it and it starts screaming, yeah. <laughs> which is hilarious. And of course, it's a mix of practical and, and CG effects when it's just sitting there. It's practical, it's, you know, but then, you know, it comes CG when it starts moving around. Yeah, it was obviously real when he took a bite out of oh, it. I yeah. was like, whoa, that's a soft gingerbread man. Yeah, yeah. And it's very doughy looking too, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It looked delicious. <laughs> but he pays for that deliciousness. Uh, he lives deliciously. You know, and if he had just eaten the whole damn thing hella quick like I would have done, he would have been fine. That's all I'm saying. So you're saying if he would have lived very deliciously, he would have made it out of this scene. He just he yeah yeah he he poked his uh, toe in the living deliciously and got and got bit for it. So <laughs> the chains wrap around or get wrapped around him by the little gingerbread man, and they yank him up the chimney. Everybody's freaking out. There's chaos ensues. One of the they all. Uh, uh, Tony Collette's character, uh, Sarah, rushes over to try to grab him, and she almost gets yanked up herself through sheer force of whatever's trying to pull him up through the chimney. I, is it? I guess it's implied it's Krampus at this point. I don't know. It doesn't really say. I was assuming it was Krampus. Um, that's what I assumed. It, it doesn't really say in the movie. But anyways. Because she, none of these things are, I mean, they might be able to come back from being beaten down. But they're not very physically strong. No, there's nothing in the movie that's physically strong. Maybe the worm, the clown, or I mean, I mean the clown snake, I guess is what I'll call it. But it's a, it's a little bit stronger than some of the others. But even the elves kind of give you this vibe, like it takes a bunch of them to take down a human. It's not like one can just take you one, uh, take you on one on one and and survive. It, it takes a bunch of them. So yeah. 
She gets almost shanked up to chimney. Everybody else is like freaking out. They're trying to grab her back down. Somebody knocks in the chaos, knocks the Yule log out. It burns the tree up, which I think this kind of reminds me of harking back to Christmas Vacation too, because mm-hmm. you know the scene where you know Uncle Lewis sets fire to the tree and burns it or, or it's burned up. I guess the cat maybe does it, but and he gets catch, caught on fire in the in the aftermath. But um, it was an ugly tree anyway. <laughs> exactly. Um, and this is the moment in time where, uh, Omi finally reveals what they're actually dealing with. I mean, she's obviously freaked out at this point and she lays it on us about how Krampus originally visited her village back in her old home. And I love this scene. It's the claymation that we, uh, we, the digital did is just awesome. I mean, it's just got enough or well, stop motion. It's not really claymation, but stop motion. Look of it is perfect. I, I like the little, even at the end where they got Krampus and he gives like, it's just this shadow and you see the little wink that he gives uh, Omi. Yeah, you know. I loved the scene. Uh, just, I just love the design of it. The way that the villagers, other than her, look like almost puppets or something that don't really move very much. They just kind of like, you know, trundle in to take the bread from her. You know, what really breaks her Christmas spirit is, you know, oh, people are, yeah. are fighting you over You know what food. The, the characters remind me of in this uh, claymation? Because I know exactly what you say when you say claymation. Um, but they remind me of the uh, stop motion characters in the Puffs Kleenex commercials. Yes, yes, they do. They also kind of remind me of Coraline, since I know you're big into that movie. There, there's something about oh that God, yeah. that reminds me a lot about that movie. So uh, I almost thought for a second, I was like, is this done by the same guy that did Cubo and, you know, Coraline? It'd be like a films, I think. They're the ones who do, you know, uh, Paranorman, Cubo, yeah. uh, and Coraline. Yeah, I thought. It gave me that vibe, but I, I love this scene, and it fits perfectly in the movie because, I mean, not only does it add to the child, the child, you know, appeal or whatever, like they're wanting with this movie, they want kids to see this movie, but it also, I mean, it, it just plays into that traditional holiday Christmas movie thing. I mean, you're used to seeing that. I mean, you know, Will Ferrell had it in, in Elf to a degree. You had the claymation Santa Claus, or, or I mean, uh, the snowman or whatever in that movie, so... Um, it just, it just fits. And anyway, she, she details a story about how she met Krampus for the first time. She got the bail, uh, lost everybody involved, uh, you know, and it, it doesn't really say why he spared her other than the fact, I guess she need, he needed a witness for everybody else to know what would happen if you lost Christmas spirit. I guess that's the vibe that I got from it. She was the cautionary tale basically. Yeah. Um, and of course, of all people, Howard doesn't believe this one bit. He, you know, he makes the comment something like, "What next? Is it going to be? Are you going to tell us a story about a rabbit Easter bunny?" Which I don't know. It's it, that almost seems like to me this is stretching it, but it's almost like a veiled reference to Ralphie's costume at the end of a Christmas story. You know, the deranged Easter bunny, you know, outfit. But it also kind of set up for me like. I really want to see Michael Doherty make a rabid Easter Bunny movie now that I heard that. I was like, come on, make make a holiday movie, horror movie for each season <laughs> if you can, you know. Yeah, like why not? <laughs> I mean, he does such a good job with them. But um, they, Howard's Howard's done at this point. He's He's got to protect his flock. He's all the time talking about how you got to be the shepherd or whatever, and he, he's tired. He's he's somebody's got to do something so he decides to try to rush outside everybody's trying to you know hold him back it's like this is stupid what are you going to do actually how how are you going to get him back just by yourself and um 
you know, he even threatens Tom with a shotgun. You know, he, he, he admits openly. He's like, I'm, I'm starting to like you, Tommy. I really am, which is big for him to admit. But he's like, don't do this. Don't get in my way. You know, I have to do this. I'm basically saying he's too much of a man to bow down and let his kid be taken, you know, by something and not fight, you know, back. And when he gets outside, that's whenever he, you see more snowmen. And this, this part right here makes me wonder something. The snowman that he sees first looks like a little miniature version of Howie Jr., even down to the mm-hmm. dumpy-looking face, because let's face it, Howie Jr. is a dumbass. Um, <laughs> and I just wonder if the other snow, uh, the other snowmen are more, I mean, they don't really have human-like faces. They're more like, I don't know, frightening in their appearance. But I just wonder if they're supposed to be representations for the other people in the town or the suburbs that were taken, you know, I already. thought that immediately. Look at, I think... I had only seen a little bit of this film. Ironically, the only part of this film I had seen previously was when the dog, we assume the dog dies, and naturally I was pissed. <laughs> so my kids were watching this, um, you know, good, wholesome holiday film. And so I hadn't really seen everything else. So when I first watched this in full a couple days ago, and I saw the snowman, I was like, oh, there's definitely bodies inside of that. Oh, man. I- Either bodies inside of it or that represents a body... That is accounted for, basically. Yeah, I, I thought more of the second, but that'd be really creepy if it was like there was actually bodies inside of that, but that would kind of fit too because that, that'd even go back to trick-or-treat because, you know, when the husband finds his wife, you know, uh, you know, she's got the lollipop inserted in her mouth and all that at the beginning and she's all bloody underneath. I mean, you know, Sam made her into a scarecrow, so that, I mean, that might be what happened. They might, you know, that, but I mean... The only thing that makes me think otherwise is the fact that Howie has just disappeared, so I don't know that his dead body's inside of that just yet. I kind of feel like he's been dragged off, and that's kind of like an effigy to show that he's he's gone. You're not getting him back, you know, that sort of thing. So, But in the movie, at this point, you know, uh, that's when they first see the elves as well. You see them off in the distance or kind of scampering around, making their little, you know, happy, you know, uh, snide laughing at the everybody involved, kind of playing around behind the snowman. And uh, they're creepy, man. They're, they're creepy as oh, hell. Yeah. Tom, I mean, at this point, they they do convince Howard to come back in because I mean, he you got these crazy elves going on. I mean, it's it's just super cold outside. He even admits earlier that he was out for a few minutes. He's already suffering from frostbite or whatever, so he knows that he can't make it outside for very long if he has to go. So I mean, he they convince him to come back in, and that's whenever they make the plan that they that yes they have to do something. But Tom, being the Eagle Scout, he is he's like let's make a plan first. They said we can't just rush out here, so they decide that they're going to try to make it to the snowplow and they're going to, you know, once they get inside that, they can maybe make it to like a local civic center or something and kind of regroup and go on from there, which is reasonable if you don't have uh, some kind of frozen hellscape outside like they have and all the other creatures yeah, involved. Yeah, I like how they were like, and do what? <laughs> exactly. It's like, what are we going to do That's when we get exactly there? That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh my God, you never hear someone say exactly what needs to be said in a movie sometimes. Well, and that plays into something here uh, too, because uh, Doherty wanted these characters to seem smarter than what, you know, most horror movie victims, I guess you might want to call them, are. I mean, even so much in, you know, in a few minutes here when we get to the part where they go upstairs to, you know, when they hear the twins screaming, uh, you know, you see uh, Sarah grabbing that, that axe or whatever to take up there with her. I mean, and they, they go up there with flashlights and they're fully armed. I mean, most movies just be like, well, I don't know. Let me go upstairs and kind of see what's going on. I'm not going to take anything to defend myself with. No, they wanted the characters to be sympathetic and like these these people aren't stupid. They've got some sense to them. So the fact that they even well, question that's fine, that, but take into consideration who let the twins go up there by themselves. Well, yeah, but well, that's one thing I was thinking about. I was like, why are you? Because they were hearing things in the house. 
So I was like, why, if you're hearing things, are you letting these kids walk around? You need to have an adult with you at all times. That's my opinion. Well, that's true. But they had also just, you'd just seen a scene prior to this where uh, Linda, you know, the sister-in-law had went upstairs uh, and she'd almost, uh, I mean, there's a little, I mean, very tense scene where she's sitting there and she's got the presents out, which are obviously, some of them are from Krampus. And she thinks she is like, I've got to rewrap these. And uh, she's, she's in freak out mode. That's her only way to cope. She's like, you know, the kids yeah. need their presents and all that. She almost unties one of them, letting them loose to begin with. So, I mean, and the only thing that saves her is that Sarah comes up and is like, you know, come on, what are you doing? And let's go back downstairs. So they'd already been up there just a second before. So I don't know if they were really that's true. Really thinking, you know, hey, we can't let our kids go upstairs. But I mean, that's you know, they they were they'd already been up there just a second before. But of course, and I love this. I love the excuse for why the twins go up there. It's just it's such a one-off funny line. They're like, uh, you know, it's like why? Or you know, I think it's uh, Jordan's like, why do you need my help going upstairs, you big baby? And she's like. And, and she's like, well, why, why are you going upstairs anyways? And she's like, I have to. Aunt Dorothy clogged up the toilet. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's such oh, a perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's so perfect for what's going on here. And so still playing in the humor aspect, obviously. And, you know, they go up there and get attacked. Uh, and this is the best part of the movie if you're like a, kind of a puppet, you know, practical effect geek. Because they really go into detail with these uh these monsters i mean they they are some they had some creepy ass looking fucking monsters um, and they're very creative with these things i mean first of all we see the clown snake or their clown as it's like uh, uh, labeled in the end credit scenes that thing's creepy as hell you got the jester's mask oh, yeah. it opens up it's got that you know, one of those mouths or whatever it looks like a sandworm type thing, anyways, and it's got like you know, yeah, jagged teeth, and 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 that whole thing kind of like the predators got where it's got like multiple jowls that come apart at the same time. I mean, just creepy as all get out, and then you know, and and you see it swallowing the last of Jordan. I mean, you know, her her boots are like going in its gullet right as they they come across it. Is it just me, or does this thing get bigger every time it eats something? I, I think it does, because, I mean, it seems like it, it it does grow in size. Like, the, I mean, uh, from the moment they see it to, like, even later, whenever they're, when it does this little clap because it knows the elves are coming to save it or whatever, it's like, it, it just keeps getting, and, and we know it grows anyways because the one that attacks Beth is just the size of a jack-in-the-box. It's teeny tiny, yeah. <clears throat> There's also a funny little thing that they added in here. If you look, uh, whenever they first discover, right before they discover the snake and they see the opened up presents that have been clearly chewed through as they chewed their way out of them, is the fact that um, one of the gingerbread men is still in its box, but it's been half eaten. And they and Doherty says that, and one of the other writers admits that that was their way of saying that the toys were so hungry that they even ate themselves, cannibalizing oh themselves to get out of there. So I just think that's... I didn't even think about that. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> it's just, in a bad way, but it's hilarious. Um, you have all this going on, and of course they chase after the snake, and that's whenever they run into more things like the cherub, which is creepy as hell. You got those creepy doll eyes, and and oh, yeah. you know, and everything. Which funny thing for uh, Tony Collette. That thing, they had to film that for at least a couple of hours, like it attacking her. And they said that she was such a trooper because every time they would stop a take, her mouth was full of like feathers and this weird goop stuff. That oh my they had God, that, that thing was so annoying. Yeah, just flapping in her face. And, and of course, it strings her up with the lights and tries to hang her and all that. And then, you know, you got the teddy bear attacking Linda and you've got the uh, 
toy robot or whatever that jumps on you know, Tom's back and starts stabbing him. Oh my god, just fucking pin stabbing him. Yeah, that that looks so painful. And they they, sh- I mean, that was actually a real device. They, I mean, of course, it didn't you know like have any point to it, but I mean, it, <laughs> it looked like it was painful just the way they filmed oh, yeah. it. And you got all that going on. And you got Howard downstairs. He's been left downstairs. He's got the bum leg, and he's supposedly going to protect the rest of the people in the house. He asks Rosie to go off and see what's, or to go and see what's happening in the kitchen. Of course, she just walks off. So he's just, you know, he thinks, okay, well, that you're worthless. So that's the bulldog. And then he he goes in there, and of course, he gets attacked by the gingerbread man hinted at earlier in the movie because he's the one that sees the one that's been attacked at the boyfriend's house. And I don't. This scene's kind of hilarious because I mean they're goofy as as I'll get out. I mean they're they're voiced by you got Seth Green, you've got uh, Justin Roiland, when who's the voice of Rick and Morty, the creator of the show. You got I mean they're I think their names are like Clumpy, Dumpy, and something else. I mean they've got I mean these gingerbread men are ridiculous, but. Like they they attack Howard with a nail gun of all things. Like that. not only has he got hurt on the one leg, but he gets a couple nails shoved in the other one for good measure, causing him to fall down. And uh, he barely saves himself with that cutting board that he's got or whatever that protects his face. It's like the nails, you know, uh, get hammered or, you know, drive into it. And um, he manages to take a couple out, but uh, it's Rosie that ends up saving him from the last one or whatever, which... Oh, yeah. The only thing that I have... See? (laughs) She ate it up. She was living deliciously. She was. The only thing I have against that scene is that it was on fire because he had just previously shot a lantern and exploded and burnt and set him on fire. And I don't understand, I mean, why the dog didn't get hurt by the fact that it just gulped down a flaming gingerbread man. But, uh, you know, whatever. Movie logic. Dogs can be real special when they are hungry, okay? (laughs) I'm not saying that my dog has gone after a flaming piece of food or wood, but... I may have experience with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the funny thing about this scene to me is the fact that, or I mean, or when hearing about the trivia, especially, or I mean, for the people upstairs, is the fact that none of the people involved, none of the actors knew what they were going to see with, from these these creatures until they had to film with them, because Doherty kept them under lock and key until the last minute, uh, hiding their designs from everybody because he wanted. The, oh, that's awesome! He wanted the cast to be as. You know, like what the fuck? You know, you know, as surprised as as everybody else would be when they first saw it. He said, "Yeah, that cherub bird was the one that got me the most." Yeah, that that. Well, anybody who's got a thing where they're like freaked out by creepy dolls, I mean, it's going to have problems with that thing. I mean, it's just designed to give you nightmares. I mean, it's it's nuts they i think they said something about they went to several consignment shops and pieced it together from like different stores so it's even like a frankenstein's monster of a cherub doll so it's even worse but yeah he wanted this to be kind of like how ridley scott did in alien where nobody on the set knew about what the face hugger looked like until it burst forth from the chest for the very first time they wanted he wanted their reactions to be as authentic when they saw these things as what their characters would be i just thought that was cool yeah you uh the, a little bit of trivia too that that clown uh, snake or whatever Dirk Clown uh, took three people to puppet there was like two women who did like uh, who did the body work for it and then there was one guy that did like the face and the puppetry for that and uh, it's kind of funny they said that they good were, job guys <laughs> they, they worked very well in tandem to make that thing look like you know just nightmare fuel basically um it was pretty. It was pretty smooth how it was operated. I'm gonna give them that. Oh yeah, 
it's kind of funny though in the trivia they said that they refer to the two women i mean this is misogynistic i can't lie but it's kind of funny they said this they said they refer to the two women uh collectively as the clown babes but and they oh my god they said that uh anytime that they were filming every guy on set would like you know have an excuse to come see them film their scenes because they knew as soon as they you know they got done filming when they came out of there you know (laughs) i don't know you know they were just going to be i mean they were basically like sweaty and all that. And I'm just like, man, that's kind of gross, but that's, that's a guy thing to do. You know, it's like, all right, oh, it totally is. I've like, got to see this scene that they're filming with this clown. I mean, for, you know, uh, I, I got a real interest in this. It's like, you know, and they're really just wanting to scope out some chicks as they come out of it. So it's just... hot, sweaty chicks. They probably wearing really tight tank tops because, you know, is, to keep cool. Is even worse than that. They were like wearing these black leotards that you'd imagine somebody who's doing ballet or something, because that's basically, oh my God. so but anyways uh so you have all that going on and uh this is the moment in time where of course rosie saves howard but also intercut with that you have linda uh, finally having her breaking bad moment she just gets fed up she's you know she's had it she mama bear kicks in she sees uh that uh, Stevie's still alive, unconscious, and she's got to get to her, and she's got to save, you know, Jordan if possible. So, which is funny, you know, she's being attacked by the bear at the time this is happening. But a true Mama Bear comes out, and she grabs the axe that's been flung down. She kills, in quotation marks, Teddy. She uh, cuts down uh, her sister, and then she goes and knocks, her and then cuts the uh, robot in half or whatever off of Tom or whatever. So. It's, uh, she saves the day, at least at this moment in time. So she's got her moment there to shine. Um, unfortunately, the clown escapes, gets into the air vent system. You know, uh, we do get Stevie back. They, they take her downstairs and they regroup a little bit. Right before that, though, the, the robot tries to come back. That's when, uh, Sarah actually has her moment too. And she picks up the pistol that Tom had and actually shoots the the robot, hopefully putting it down for the count, but it's not because we'll see in a minute that whenever uh, the, the snake is still in the system and they're trying to get to it, they, they have they have no idea how they're going to get you know get it out of there. But they do know it's trapped because it has no way out. And uh, that's whenever we have um, Rosie the dog uh, heroically going to the air register to try to find the snake and you know and get uh, Jordan back. And this is when we have a rut row moment, <laughs> which uh, also ties into the mini curse. Did you know about this? I didn't. You were telling me that you that the film may have some curses tied to it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so apparently the same day and actually the, an hour after they filmed this scene with the dog uh, dying in the film, uh, Mike Doherty's actual uh, bulldog uh, Jabba passed away uh, at, at around the same time, like in real life. And yeah. You know, he, he mentions, he said he almost threw in the towel at that point because he said he was, so, you know, it just hit him so hard because, you know, he said it was rough on scene or on the film to film, you know, of course, Rosie being, you know, like that. I mean, it's make-believe and all that, but I mean, you know, people are how they are with animals and I mean, it still hits you, but he said to find out his real life dog passed away, I mean, that was rough. But that wasn't the only thing that happened during the filming of this. Apparently his grandmother died while he was in post-production with the film. Uh, one of the other writers, uh, grandmothers passed away while they were filming it, and a bunch of the cast lost their fathers uh, in particular, but also other family members while they were filming the movie. So much so that it was noticeable. I mean, they said they 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 said you get an aging you know set of cast members, you expect some of that, but they said it was so common that yeah. people took notice of it. So 
kind of an odd thing. We got another little mini curse here going on. So, yeah, and on a, a comedy horror film of all films, not a <laughs> super serious, you know. Yeah, and maybe that's why it wasn't a full on curse. I don't know, but I mean, it's kind of you know we we've got three for three of having a slight curse going on. I mean, between you know Charlie the goat, you know attacking. And, uh, you know, all the stuff that went on with the exorcist and now this, I mean, it's kind of odd, but anyways, in the film, Rosie has her moment. I, I'm like you, I never really got the impression when I first watched it, that the dog died. It sounded like it was attacking the clown, but you don't see the dog from then on out. So, and they confirmed in the behind the scenes commentary that she was, I guess, swallowed by the, the clown. I figured she was swallowed, but so were a couple other kids. And I don't know what it is about that that was like, okay, you're swallowed, but are you dead? Well, I don't know. It's I, th- Apparently, there's still hope inside of me. I don't know. Well, I got the same feeling because if you look at its body, it was like made out of this fabric stuff that I didn't feel like would kill a person. If they, it, you could, if you could kill the, the snake or, you know, the head of it, at least, you could maybe cut them back out. That's the impression I got. Maybe that's not what they intended, but that's what I got out of it. But uh, the clown actually falls through the ceiling. And, of course, the people who... With its fat ass. <clears throat> oh, yeah, and it's fully fed at this point. I mean, it's looking pretty, you know, massive. Uh, like you said, it looks like it's gained some mass now that it's, you know, <laughs> had somebody else. It barely fit into the vet. Like, you saw it struggling to get into the oh, vet. Oh, yeah, it was, it was barely squeezed in there. And, uh, and of course, everybody who's seeing it now who didn't see it to begin with is freaking out. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, Howard sees it and... Well, it's kind of funny because he makes this comment. He's like, honey, you wouldn't believe what I saw. And, and, you know, right before this thing falls and she's like, Howard, don't even get me started. (laughs) And when he finally sees it, he's like, oh, shit. And, uh, you know, I just think that's funny because that also plays in what we're talking about. You know, realistically, it's like, you know, a lot of these people in these movies, they just see this stuff and it's like, okay, now I'm dealing with this. And they never make a, you know, anybody in real life would make sarcastic comments like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And I think they even say that in this movie at one point in time, whenever they see one of these things, you got to be kidding me, you know. It's it, the the clown is falling down. It's still a threat. Teddy comes back for more. The cherub flies in. I think attacks Howard, and he drops the shotgun. And of course, it, now it's time for Aunt Dorothy to step up and do her thing. She becomes the badass. She gets the shotgun. She's just fed up with this crap, and she she completely blows away Teddy. She just, I mean, he's gone <laughs> when she takes him out. Uh, she knocks the cherub out for the count, and she's getting ready to finish the clown when we hear the thunder and the music come in, and the elves, and they finally, and that's whenever, we know something's up, because right as she's getting ready to shoot the clown, it starts clapping, like, oh God, here it yeah. comes, you know, and uh, in rush the, the elves, and they bind up Dorothy in chains, they grab poor baby Chrissy who's been kind she's been in scenes in the movie particularly with Dorothy and some stuff but she's kind of been put off to the side and you know now we see you know the the that harkens back to the real Krampus myth about you know actual babies being taken off by this thing and they wrap them both up and and you know basically along with the uh I I think they're getting ready or they drag them out and uh then the worm they're getting ready to pull it out too and howard's just had enough he's like i'm I'm going after him so he in defiance he jumps on the tail end of the snake and kind of a comically the way it, it leaves or whatever it just you know it even makes like some kind of goofy sound to play up the comedy of it they just get whisked away and they're gone and yeah we've got i mean most of the family gone at this point. We've just got Tom. We've got Sarah. Uh, Linda's still there. Uh, Stevie, Max, and then Omi. And in the process of all this happening, the last ember has been put out by the elves. And so, of course, now it's time for Krampus to make his appearance. 
And Omi, of course, decides it's time for her to make her ultimate sacrifice to save her family. So she tells them to leave and she actually locks them out uh, so that she can uh, give them time to get out of there while Krampus uh, pays his visit to the family. And this is the first time we actually see him face to face. And man, did they do a good job on this thing. They did a really good job with his entire body, his face, everything. I mean, you don't even realize it till you get to looking at it. But even just like his outfit, it looks like it's been like pieces like put together, like patched up over time. They wanted that look. They wanted him to look ancient, like he's repaired and, re you know, constantly repaired his like, you know, cloak that he's wearing or that big, you know, overcoat that he's got. It's just got like all these patches and everything from... And I mean, it's just, and of course that, that, that mask that they chose, I mean, you know, I don't know if they meant this as a reference back to a, you know, a Christmas carol, but the fact that he has like this slack jawed corpse's face, you know, plastered onto him kind of harkens back a little bit to that whole thing about Jacob Marley and the, you know, tying the ribbon. But it also, I mean, if you, if you look at it, it's clearly looks like an imitation of Santa Claus's face, which I don't know. There's a hint there that Krampus could have taken Santa Claus's face. I mean, it does say it in the movie. Doherty kind of plays around with it. He's like, I'm not going to tell you whose face that is, but it's definitely somebody's face. So I don't know if they're trying to say that he actually got to St. Nick at some point and killed him and took his face. But, you know, there you have it. Gross. Um, they did say that they wanted it for two different reasons, though. They wanted the face to cover up his real face, which is kind of hidden behind it, because you can see his eyes blinking behind this face, because they didn't, yeah. they didn't want it to be, a, they didn't want to give it a definitive look to Krampus's visual appearance. They want it to be, you know, this is our version, but the real version's hid behind it, and you can make it out however you want to be, however you're, you know, you celebrate They didn't want us to know that it was Black Philip all grown up. Exactly. <laughs> Black Philip is back. Charlie the Goat is back. He's he's came to Gorsal. But they, they also said they wanted it because, and this is interesting, because they said that Krampus and their version is so jealous of Santa Claus that he wanted to look like the cool kid Santa, so he took somebody's face that looks strikingly like Santa and started imitating him. So it's it's like he's so obsessed with Ew. Santa Claus that he that he did this. That was creepy. Oh, it's really creepy. Yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, it fits. I mean, it, and the and the fact too, just something that I'm seeing here, like his the big lolling tongue that he's got. Like I mean, it just you know, it, it's I don't know. It, it's it, that's creepy too. And then he kind of like you know looks like he's gonna lick like omi's face which is so nasty and then instead he takes those big long fingers that they've created for him and he like scoops up one solitary tear and like he swallows it and kind of chuckles or whatever because he's finally you know he's savoring the you know pain that it, that she's experiencing it i don't know this they they definitely did a good job with this whole thing i mean it's it's crazy but we cut from that to outside and then the rest of the family goes through their various sacrifices you got tom they're all trying to get to the snowplow still, but Tom along the way realizes the snowworms are just too big of a threat. He, um, you know, he, he tries to, you know, keep them at bay, but eventually runs out of ammo and he just tells them to go on that they need to make it, you know, and uh, you see him dragged away. Sarah and Linda both get the children inside the snowplow, but they each get yanked away by worms of their own right as soon as they get them inside. And that's where we end the second act. It's you got Max and Stevie by themselves. They are completely alone now. But they're not alone in the sense that they're not by themselves because right after this, uh, Stevie is uh, abducted by the elves. and it's Just when you thought they were safe. 
yeah, you think the two of them might have got a slight reprieve and that they might be able to make it out of this, but no, right right at that moment in time, they both and they both get attacked, but the elves kind of leave Max alone, I guess, so because they know that Krampus wants him for himself, and so they just take Stevie and run off. And this is the moment in time where the the writers, uh, in particular, uh, wanted to to mention that this completes Max's. Uh, journey into being a hero like the the whole joseph campbell model of you know the the hero myth or whatever they they use it quite a bit in star wars to describe like how luke skywalker became the the hero he was you know how you have to have a mentor a father figure that teaches you the ways and then eventually they fall to the wayside and you have to step up and be the hero you were meant to be this is the moment in time where Max finally gets to that point because he's lost his father, which up to this point was his mentor, and he and he has to decide, am I going to give in to this or am I going to try to get my family back? And he's given, he's given the option of stepping away because Krampus appears to him, gives him the bell, just like he did Omi, and... And just a shot to the heart, just to make it that more painful for, for Max he's wrapped it up in the torn pieces letter. I think that's perfect for this. I mean, it's just that little extra jab that he's done. To, it's like, Hey, listen, kid, you're the cause of all this. <laughs> yeah. It's all your fault. And Max realizes when he sees it, I mean, you can just see the guilt in his face and the, you know, the tears and everything. And Krampus just leaves him. He's like, there you go. It's, you, you know, you're, you're the cause of this. You're the new witness to what happens. Uh, see ya. You know, your family's gone. But <clears throat> Max, and, and this makes him a better hero than Omi. Max decides that he's not going to just carry on the rest of his life and deal with this. He's going to actually fight for his family. And like I said, he becomes the hero of the film finally at this point. He doesn't just accept this. He actually tracks down Krampus. There's some kind of weird pagan ritual that Krampus, celebration that Krampus is doing with his elves and some... Uh, horrible looking reindeer and I mean the the toys and everything they're having this big bonfire and they're celebrating as they're getting ready to sacrifice or whatever they're going to do to Stevie and um, Max just you know he defies you know every bit of it he he tells him you know he yells at Krampus he's like I don't want this I want I, I don't uh, I want my family back and he he throws the the bell back at uh, Krampus and that's when it turns into this huge hell mouth in the middle of everyone and um, you don't really know how it's going to go at this point because it, it seems like this would be the point in a lot of more, I, I guess, less horrific movies where, you know, maybe, you know, Krampus would get swallowed up in the hell mouth and the family would somehow, or at least Stevie would be saved. But no, they, uh, the elves just go, they, uh, you know, they all stop for a second and then they laugh at Max at what he's done and, and Krampus basically, uh, uh, or, you know, saunters over to him. And while this is all happening, the elves toss Stevie into the pit like she's nothing. And, and yeah, they didn't, they didn't give a shit. Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, whatever you think you're doing something, kid, here you go. And, uh, Krampus, you know, sees that, you know, uh, that Max is crying and, and Max even says, it's like, take me, you know, it's like, I, I'm the one that caused all this, let my family live. I'm the cause of all this, you know, basically self-sacrificing and Krampus just, uh, relishes his tears like he did for Omi, picks him up and uh, throws him down in the, the hell mouth just like the, what happened to Stevie. But actually, uh, we have Max waking up right after this on Christmas Day and everything goes right back to the way it was prior to all this. It seems like it could have been a dream. Um, 
uh, he goes downstairs, his family's celebrating. They're all, you know, cheery. I mean, every, the color tone has returned back to the warmth that we saw from the beginning of the movie. Everything seemed, maybe it was a dream. He woke up out of the bed, so maybe it, you know, wasn't that big of a deal, but we see that he gets a, a gift of his own and it's the Krampus spell. And mm-hmm. not only, and it hints that not only he remembers what happened, but everybody in the household remembers what happens because they all have their little moments where they like you, it plays in the background, little things they, you know, like echoes of what they did and things they said. And they all have that look on their face like, oh shit, that really happened, didn't it? You know, and it opens up an interpretation of this movie. I don't know how you feel about this because some people feel like, and I had this interpretation of this movie originally until I read a little bit more about it, that this basically was, uh, especially with what happens in a minute where it kind of zooms out and it shows that they're all inside of a snow globe, which is all inside of like Krampus's workshop. I originally thought this meant that this movie or that it was to imply that they were all now in like some kind of Christmas purgatory, that they were all like trapped in like a Christmas hell that they couldn't get out of. But that's exactly what I thought it was. I, I, have not come with any other up with any other interpretation. Yeah, I cannot word right now. I cannot <laughs> come up with any other interpretation of what else could be going on. Well, and of course, too, there's a little bit of trivia before I get into further discussion about this. Uh, of course, we have Bing Crosby singing, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, which is super creepy given what we think is going on. Oh, what we're witnessing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the fact that apparently in, in the different homes that, that are in the background, there's, um, there, there are other famous houses trapped in those snow globes, like the Bates Motel is one of those, and uh, even the director's house is in one of them. So, uh, oh my God, that's awesome! Yeah, it's it, that's kind of cool. But uh, as far before we move on from the ending, I want to say that when Max opens up his gift and it's the bell, specifically Tony Collette, but even everybody else involved, the look on her face of pure horror was so real. I'll be honest. It was like this complete look of dread. I'll be honest with you. I'm getting chills right now thinking about it because I, I think they all sold it. I mean, you would think... Ad- oh, they did. You would think Adam Scott, I mean, being the comedic actor he is, but I mean, he even sold it. You get that look on his face like, oh my God, no. Don't tell me this is, you know, th- this is back. You know, I thought this was... I thought I'd dream this. You know, you they, they all they sold it. I mean, a thousand percent, you know. Oh, Yeah. Um, the other interpretation though, of this ending, beside it being like some kind of Christmas purgatory is the fact that some people, and, and I, I think this is probably Doherty does not give an official interpretation of how the movie should be read, although he kind of does. And I'll get into that in a minute, but the other interpretation that I think he leans toward is the fact that this is Krampus's way of saying you did the sacrifice that Omi couldn't do. So you got your family back, but listen, kid, I'm still watching you, and I will watch you for the rest of your life, so don't lose the Christmas spirit. Maybe. (laughs) That would be too good of an ending, though. I agree, but uh, there's apparently a prequel comic to this that actually gives that same, or that sides with that interpretation, so... And that prequel comic was, of course, greenlit by Doherty, so... But he did say that he... He intentionally left this vague because he knew people would view it uh, the two different ways. And he said it really just boils down to how optimistic or pessimistic. He said if you really want to be pessimistic and think that the you know that there's no way that somebody get their Christmas spirit back and they're going to be you know trapped in hell for eternity because of it, then sure, read it that way. But he's like, uh, if you want to be more optimistic and say that people can learn their lesson and you know maybe just they they need the reminder that they're not off the hook, then 
maybe go that way with it. So, I mean, there is, there are a couple of different ways you can read it. Like I said, I still I still read it when I first watched it as being, like you said, the pessimistic ending. I thought it's like, oh, my God, they're trapped in hell now for eternity, along with all these other homes, you know. Oh, God, and I am a pure optimist, so that's, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> and, and I'm just wondering, too, what about the rest of the people in that neighborhood? I mean, you know, that, that was always my thought. I was like, did they, were they drugging this purgatory too because they didn't believe in Christmas either? I mean, like literally Max was the only thing keeping Krampus from destroying everybody in that town. I mean, that's the impression well, I got, do, you know. Yeah, they do address it a little bit of um, so-and-so's out of town because when uh, Tony Collette's character, um, what's what's the character's name? Sarah. Sarah, there we go. Well, they're discussing there's, you know, we're running out of food. Um, there's no electricity. There's no this. There's no that. And they were like, well, what about the neighbors? Oh, well, so-and-so's out of town. So-and-so basically was kind of like Home Alone where everybody was gone. Well, that is true, and yeah. Which could be a tie back to Home was, Alone. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, what for the people that were in town, because not everybody was out of town, for the ones that died, what did they do? The lore of Krampus, which I'm not going to say that this ruined the movie because it did not, is that Krampus comes for the ones that are specifically being naughty. So every single person left in this town was being naughty. I got the impression they were because, I mean, especially if you go back to what I was saying about the paintings, uh, even the Santa Claus, the mall Santa, was so degenerate in this town that he was you That's know, true. eyeballing an underage and girl. And there was the beginning scene, so I guess that would make sense. Yeah, so I think that literally, even though Max feels all this guilt for what he's done I mean how can you feel guilt for the fact that you were literally the only person keeping Krampus at bay anyways I mean he 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 was the hero before he was the hero basically so yeah okay I'll allow it <laughs> um, a little a bit of additional trivia about the movie the director read about Krampus when he was a child because he just refused to believe that Christmas was just this you know holiday that had no uh, dark underpinnings to it whatsoever that it was so cheery and that's whenever he actually found out you know going to the local library all this stuff about Krampus and and uh you know he's you know wondering why we didn't have this more in the United States than you know what they did good for you Mr. Doherty <laughs> brought a whole culture over to the United States yeah and uh, and it got brought back up later. What made him think to do the movie was that him and the other writers got, uh, were watching a series of videos of Krampus festivals in Europe. And, you know, he thought back to his youth and he's like, we need to make this to a movie. Nobody here knows about this. This is just an idea right for the picking, you know. So he originally thought for half second of making an anthology like Trick or Treat, but he decided against that because he said it and, and ultimately it played into the idea later about not shit on Christmas, that they really needed to focus on one central family so that you got to know them, you got to know their foibles, you know, the things that made them fall apart so and bring them back together so it felt like more a traditional Christmas movie because if you just did a bunch of little vignettes here and there, you wouldn't have got that feeling. So I think he made the right... Well, I think the overall, like... I think the overall full of the film is even if they had made a let's shit on Christmas film, I think the idea is, hey, if you in general are going to shit on Christmas, you better expect to see Krampus in your house. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and not Santa Claus. That is true. So no matter which way he went with it, I like the direction he went with it. Like I, I do like that he didn't shit on it, you know, directly. So, but even if he had, I think we know that that's not how we should be acting. Well, and, and that even plays in what I was getting ready to say. They they wanted this movie, 
to uh, to show that the myth is necessary and a natural balance to the actual what we think of as Christmas because we we think of Christmas as like you know be good you'll get rewarded be bad eh, you'll get a lump of coal you know uh, you might not get what you want but you know that is what it is but they said that really Krampus is a necessary part of the Christmas mythology because you get the punishment to go along with it if you know okay if you're not good you don't just not get the gift you actually get a you know a punishment in, in place of it and and that plays into the whole morality, you know, of, of the of the stories behind, you know, the the traditional Christmas myths and that sort of thing. It's a way of keeping people basically on their toes and you know uh, keeping them morally balanced. You know, it's like, hey, you're you know um, you got to be good, so and you'll get something if you are. But if you're not, you know, it kind of kind of a Christian type, you know, thing if you really think about it. At least and you know evangelical Christianity, where it's like you'll get in heaven if you're good, but if you if you you know do bad things you're gonna be burning in hell for eternity you gotta have that little bit of fear to you know keep people in line basically like we said earlier so i think it plays into that i think that's you know part of what makes this movie good is that it you know it really it doesn't and it, and like i said he doesn't go wholeheartedly into the horror of it because he wants it to still be something that kids can see and they kind of get that myth about it he did do something though that uh made it worse for him and i uh and maybe you'll realize what i'm talking about whenever i say this he basically picked the unholy trinity of things to put in this film he has a <laughs> he has a baby in this film which are notoriously bad for trying to work with if unless you have twins oh, and it was just a baby by itself usually they have twins Ex in case one's misbehaving exactly they said they had so many no. scenes where they had to stop filming and have somebody take the baby off set and have them console it before they could start filming filming again um so you have the baby you have a dog i mean you know oh come on <laughs> rosie was a sweetie yeah but i mean we know with charlie you can sometimes get problems whenever you're dealing with animals and of course he had puppets and i mean puppets you know you would think they'd be the easiest of the ones to work of those three to work with but i mean when they break down i mean they, they can really break down so especially yeah, that's true especially if you got puppets that are you know operated by three different people like they're clowns so i mean at one time yeah he uh he really took on a lot of misery for himself to get this done, but you know it paid off in the end. So I can't really say much. Well, about look at I'm gonna I'm sorry, but uh, Dirk Clown. All the credit goes to the Clown Babes. I'm sorry, they just have my vote. <laughs> it's the movement of the body, I think, that does more. I mean, I and he they even kind of joke about this that the poor guy who did the you know the actual puppetry for the face kind of gets forgotten and all that because everybody was so enamored with the clown babes but it's really the movement of that body that adds to the creepiness of that i mean the face is what yeah. it is but that that it's just got that snake-like movement to it that really just makes sorry it. clown face <laughs> <laughs> um this movie uh unfortunately at the time this was released do you remember what other big movie was coming out the time this came out I don't. I can see it on the notes, uh, and I cannot believe. Yeah, uh, Star Wars, <laughs> and I believe it was The Force Awakens, came out at the same time this did. So, of course, this movie didn't have a chance in hell of becoming, like, uber famous, which it probably wouldn't have anyways based upon the content. Horror comedies are kind of a niche thing to begin with, but when you, and, and horror comedies set at Christmas are probably even more so, but you throw the juggernaut that is Star Wars in there, you're asking for it. But... They did fairly well. I mean, they, you know, they were filmed on a budget of 15 million. They made 61 million, all said and told at the box office. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Um, and 
I mean, and I think over time they'll just get more and more people viewing the movie because, like I said, it's 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 like Trick or Treat. It's one of those standout movies that you know it kind of gets a cult following and snowballs the more that people see it. You know, and 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 when you've got holiday movies, people. I know myself, I'm like this. When I find a good holiday movie, it stays on repeat. Every year when it comes that time of the year, I'm watching that movie. So I think that's just going to play more and more into this movie becoming popular over time. Yeah, and the good thing about this, too, is that it gives you a mix. There's only so many holiday films that are happy and cheery that you're just like, oh, let's play this nonstop. No, throw some horror in that bad boy. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Get some darkness in your life. I mean, yeah, up to this point, I mean, especially if you wanted it to be something you could watch with children. I mean, literally, you had A Christmas Carol, whichever version you want to watch of that. You had Gremlins, and you have this. I mean, the rest of them are like pseudo-slashers and that sort of thing. So it, exactly. it, it, it has a place. Um, Look at even if it's just this one film, it adds something good to the mix. I, exactly, and I and I can't say enough good. Th- I love the comedy in this movie. I love the horror elements. Like I said, I think they pulled punches with it, but intentionally. I mean, if you take those scenes where Beth full or first ventures outside, if you would have kept that movie at that tone and that kind of creepiness, this thing would have been a total five on our horror scale. It would have been a Beetlejuice for sure. But they pulled it. They pulled it back and. I'm going to get to my rating of it. I think it's a three, but I think it's an intentional three. Now, on our scale, we have, of course, we have Casper, which is a one, you know, friendly, not very scary. We have two. We have Patrick Swayze or Sam Waite from, you know, the movie Ghost. He's got a little bit of, you know, oomph to him as far as the ghost ability, at least toward the end of the movie, but, you know, not scary. I mean, more of a love story. You've got three, which is Bruce Willis or Dr. Malcolm Crow. I mean, the poor bastard worked while he was dead. That's pretty horrifying, so I'll give him a three for that. <laughs> Mrs. Massey from, you know, The Shining, uh, one of the scarier, uh, I mean, we talked about it on the last one, but I mean, that whole scene where she's in there with Danny Torrance, I mean, that's horrific. Uh, She's definitely a four, one of the scariest things. And of course, Beetlejuice, Ghost of the Most, uh, scariest you could be. I think this is a solid three uh, or a Malcolm Crow as far as the, the, the ghost scale, just because I think they meant it to be that way. I think they, they wanted it to get just scary enough to where it would, you know, hit you as a horror movie, but then they wanted to, they pulled punches so they could get, you know, keep it still whimsical, keep it still kind of a Christmas movie. Uh, I am going to have to agree with you on all of that. Um, now, there are aspects of this film that and you mentioned too that would shoot it up to Beetlejuice goes with the most I'm gonna be a three as well but some of the positives of this film um the cinematography of it I mean you mentioned that a little bit but oh my god the lighting how it changes with the tone of the film yeah and it really brings a whole different feel to the movie like it instantly gets cold when you see that blue tone Come up. Especially, uh, I'll say this, especially if you watch it from an area like in Appalachia where we're currently going through, you know, some pretty cold times, which I know you don't have out there in California. But whenever you're watching it on a cold day and then the cold kicks in on the movie, you feel that little extra burst of the cold and it's just like, okay. A little extra chill. Uh, yeah. I, I need to put on. I'll be honest with you. We feel that out here too. I mean, come on now. Like in 60 degrees is cold for us, okay? Uh, <laughs> that, that actually happened the other day here and it felt like heaven, so I can't say much. It's warm for us. Exactly. It's a whole different world. World. So um, cinematography, I think the sound design was good. I think the puppets, how they were made. Weta knocked it out of the park. really well done. Weta did. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because even though they had that silly little giggle to them, um, they were creepy. 
they did a really good job. That clown puppet, I mean, if, if it had been any other straight horror movie, that thing would have, you know, just knocked it up again by itself to a Beetlejuice level. Not counting Krampus design. I mean, let, let's just face it, that Krampus design is off the charts crazy and great. And, I mean, both of those things. He's almost a scale of his own. Yeah, I mean. Just the Krampus design. Yeah, and if it wasn't for the fact that they made the, the gingerbread men so goofy to kind of bring it back down, if they didn't make that little, those little things like the little, like a said whenever Howard is grabbed onto the end of their clown and it makes this stupid little goofy noise that flies out the window in this comedic fashion. If they didn't add that stuff in and pull it back, it, oh man, it would have been you know way up there on the horror scale. So, Yeah, this is one of those films that you, if you don't have a little chicken child, <laughs> sorry I said it, this is, a, this is a good, scary, cautionary Christmas tale for the children that if they can handle a little horror in their life, uh, they're going to like this film. Adults alike will like this film. I think it has a great amount of fear in it, nice uh, scare tactics in it, it's a little bit of cheese, but the cheese that they have in this film is not overdone. I don't know how they pulled it off in this film because usually stuff like that irks me. I do not like, I don't really like horror comedy too much, and this film pulled it off really good. So it's also a Bruce Willis for me. Great film. Love the lore of Krampus. Uh, they followed it pretty well. They did a pretty good job of just including kind of what he does and how he works. And so, and I, well, I can't say enough good things about the cast. I mean, you had Tony Collette bringing in the you know the dramatic acting. You had the you know uh, David Koechner and uh, Adam Scott you know bringing the comedy. A little bit of thrown in there, a little bit of sass from uh, Conchetta Farrell. I mean. They, they knew what they were getting, and, and and when he said they got a Christmas miracle in the cast they got, I couldn't agree more because this is a – when you get the older actors in this movie, and I mean MJ himself, he's very charismatic as a child actor, but you get those older uh, actors and actresses in this movie, I mean, they got a great cast. I mean, they, they were able to play both parts, the horror and the comedy, uh, perfectly well, and I can't tell you how much this stands out compared to some of these – other like sleigh bells and other movies of that ilk that came out after all this i mean it's night and day i mean it's this is just such a superior movie to anything out there with this theme or this you know centered around krampus so just highly recommended for anybody that wants to watch this and with that i say let's wrap up part two of krampus the christmas devil Catch us next time when the horror hillbilly and the horror Hispanic discuss the uh, classic film *Rosemary's Baby*. Uh, it is a new year, and uh, uh, and we're expecting a, a little bundle of joy. So, uh, with that, uh, La Urena, peace be with you, and with your spirit. <laughs>